0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So far, we've been looking through the Book of Romans, and we realize that the best place to do, uh, to start is actually at the end of the letter to see where it's going. It's kind of like getting a sneak peek at the end of a whodunit novel to find out who done it, And then when you come to the front, you understand all the clues along the way that point you in that direction. And so the first week we looked at that and we found the issue of power and privilege in Roman society, in Jewish society, was really behind this letter. That actually in Romans, the weak and the strong how Paul talks about those two groups, were kind of divided in the Roman church, the divisions were happening, how men and women were uh, basically put in a hierarchy in Roman society, how the free from the slaves and how the patricians and those at the top and the elites and the wealthy were really stratified above others and how all those divisions that society and all the rivalries that society had caused in the Roman world were bringing being brought together and united in Jesus Christ, that there is no male nor female, slave or free, um, Gentile or Jew, but all are one in Christ. That comes from the book of Galatians, but the theme in Romans is very similar. Um, Also, we discovered that the whole point of how this uh, this mending takes place is in the word called the gospel. That was our second week as we looked at the passage, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the dynamite, the power of God for salvation. And so it's the gospel that doesn't just give or doesn't give advice on what you better do, but actually gives good news, a proclamation of what God has done for you. And then last week we looked at, you got to start with some of the bad news first, as uh, Romans 2 does. And once you understand how everyone, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you think you're spiritual, whether you are more of a scientific base, no matter who you are, we all fail, we all need, uh, we all don't even meet our own standards, let alone God's standards. We're all inconsistent and broken, and therefore, we need the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ today. We're going to look at this passage, as I mentioned, was more or less the foundation of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, because it tells basically the grand story of the entire Bible in a very short uh, section. And I don't know if you realize this, many people don't. When I was in Sunday school, I didn't. You know, when I was growing up, I thought we had one little Bible story, then the next Bible story, then the next Bible story. And these little stories, these little snippets of the Bible, we thought they were just good advice or good, you know, moral teachings, kind of like Aesop's fable, but actual real life historical examples, you know, of wisdom sayings. And so what you're supposed to learn from the Bible is just a bunch of virtues and wisdom and practical knowledge and be a good person stuff. And that is not the story of the Bible. That's not even the little stories of the Bible. But the Bible has one great grand story of justification or how we are justified, that God knows we've broken this world and we've broken our hearts and our relationship with him and with each other and how God is coming about to mend it. And that's the grand story that we see throughout. The Bible isn't a set of disconnected moral truths, but one great story of what God is doing to rescue human beings. And we see that in this passage of Romans 3 today. Uh, Romans 3, 21 to 28, if you want to follow along. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul is not just claiming that the story that the Bible has, this great grand narrative that he kind of summed up in this passage. He's not saying that this is just the story of the Bible. He's saying this is the story of all reality, that this is the story everybody's a part of whether they recognize it or not, and it's a story that they need to understand to become a part of because of what God is doing in this world. It's the grand narrative of explaining who we are, what went wrong, how God is fixing it, and where we are headed. And it's summed up in this wonderful phrase, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So today, in some ways, I'm going to be um, not that inspiring, I don't think. I'm not going like, to go like, wow, and everybody's going, oh. But I, I'm hoping to really be crystal clear so that you understand exactly how God has and what God is doing in this world. And we're looking at a specific word, two specific words that work together actually. The word decayo, which is to justify, and the word decaiosune, which is righteousness. And it, you possibly can see the two of them here up on our screen today. decayo and dikayosune are related. It is the idea that God justifies us. Now, what does it mean to be just? to be called just, to be declared just, to be called righteous when we haven't been. That's what's going on here. And so we're going to be looking at this and how um, everybody's really looking for this. Everybody wants to be justified. Everybody's looking for righteousness, whether they recognize it or not, whether they use that word or not. And so we're gonna look at what this righteousness is from this passage. In these three points, why do I actually need it? What is it, and how do we receive it? So, first of all, why do we need it? Okay, he says, The righteousness of God comes through faith. And I don't know if you realize this, but this is a radical, this passage is like a radical shift, a total monumental continental shift, and earth shattering earth, you know, universe just shifted with Paul revealing that this is how it's working because prior to this, righteousness has been sought by human beings from the beginning in a whole different way. And now he says, but now the righteousness of God is here in a whole new way, a whole new way of looking at things. Now, that word righteousness... When and it, have any of you here used that word righteous or righteousness this week? Probably not, right? If you have, it's probably in the context of he thinks he is so righteous, which means you're really saying it's kind of a haughty attitude of self righteousness, which is the opposite of what it actually is, you know? But it's kind of a, uh, we almost look at, Thinking yourself righteous and right is a pride thing. You know. I'm, but what you don't realize is almost everybody's trying to be right. And everybody's trying to act like they're right. And everybody's trying to be, quote, righteous. But I don't think they really know what they're looking for. Okay, I don't always put it together. I think the best definition for righteousness is this. It's a valid status that opens doors, OK? A valid status that opens doors. In other words, for example, um, I put together a curriculum vitae sometimes. Have you ever put one of those together? And you, a curriculum vitae, which is a Latin phrase for your life's course or your life's race, um, is basically your work experiences, where you've lived, what you've done, what you've accomplished, the degrees you have, everything. You put this together to show the status that you have to, when you apply for a job and say, I qualify for this position. It certifies your performance and validates your status, your curriculum vitae. Now, people have been known to fudge them, right? right. And sometimes they've gotten caught. Right? If you want to get a degree at a university, you have to have your academic record that you show. It's basically validating your status to become a student in the program, whether it's a master's, a doctorate, or a bachelor's degree. And you, you give them your grade point, your Test scores, all this stuff, and it validates yes, you're approved, you can't be accepted into the program. Now, there's another type of status that we have in our societies that sometimes we don't recognize, and that is called privilege. Okay? Privilege is something you might not realize you've got. For instance, when I grew up in small town of Frankenmouth, Michigan, my dad was a school teacher at the Christian school in town. And that, in a town of 3,000, gave me status, I didn't realize. Because in those days, and uh, we've got some people who are teachers or who know teachers before t- today, in our society, teaching didn't have as, doesn't have as much status. We know um, it's a good thing to do. It's very sacrificial. Um, but in a small town like I was in in Frankenmuth, being a teacher's kid gave you a status of saying, of course, you're going to be a good, obedient child at school. You're going to be good at school. You're going to be conscientious. You're going to be a good citizen. It opened a lot of doors and a lot of things. Wherever I went, oh, you are Ed Roth's son. That is status. That is privilege. Okay? We have it in a variety of ways. In Roman world, at the time of Paul, power and privilege went together together. Opening doors went together. In the Roman society, being a citizen gave you a status. Being free rather than a slave gave you a certain amount of status. Being ethnically from the Roman Etruscan background rather than a barbarian or foreigner gave you status. Being male, sorry ladies, but at that time, being male gave you a higher status than being female. Being wealthy gave you more status. Being a patrician, being an elite, being a senator, all those things. In Jewish society, they also had kind of a ladder of status as well. Some of it was based on your family background. For instance, I don't know if you realize it, they didn't have last names, you know? Um, But it's like you always said, like, Jesus, son of Joseph. Do you understand? So Ben is the word for son, and so it was Jesus ben Joseph would have been Jesus' name because people in that day would have assumed he was the actual son of Joseph. He was the adopted son, but he was the son of Joseph. Or anyone, it would be whoever your father's was, and so that attached certain status. But not only that, if you were part of the Sanhedrin, the upper crust, those who were the nobles in Israel, you had status, you had moral status if you were part of the priesthood, if you were wealthy, If you were a Pharisee, you thought you based your status on the the record of the law and how conscientiously you kept the law of God. Those are all status issues. I don't know if you realize this, but every religion in the world and every culture sets up a status ladder. And every religion assumes the way it works in society is the way it works with God. If there is a God and you're going to uh, have a spiritual connection to God, you need some type of an access, open door of status that you bring before him. And now it's not your vocational record. It's not your curriculum vitae. It's not your academic record. It's not your, but it's your moral record that most religions will say. You've got to have a certain status of being a good person to ever get God to listen to you to be accepted, to be open to his presence. And so people keep breaking out their status record with God. In Paul's day, like I said, the Pharisees assumed it was what they had to do to accomplish, how they tithed down to even the spices and herbs that they used, that one-tenth of it they set aside and gave over to God, that they conscientiously prayed three times a day, that they conscientiously gave and served and Um, read the scriptures and memorized and that gave them a certain status in society. That they knew that they were of a certain lineage, you know, from the tribe of Benjamin, let's say, or that they had been circumcised and they were keeping the law and they had gone through those things. That gave, every religious system has that. Um, Now, outside of, Judaism or Christianity, and we'll get to Christianity in a minute because that, that's the but now a new status is given is from this passage. But outside of it, for instance, in the Hindu scriptures called the Upanishads, there's a passage that talks about this very well that kind of explains it for a lot. It says this, as one acts and conducts himself, so does he become. The doer of good becomes good. The doer of evil becomes evil. One becomes virtuous by virtuous action, bad by bad action. Very similar to what Aristotle would say. You become a good person by doing good things. And once you do enough good things, you have enough status, you've gotten somewhere. Very, very moralistic. It's all up to you. You create your own status in society. You create your own righteousness, your own place the privilege that opens the doors for you. So religions tend to have a lot of faith, actually, in humanity's ability to create their own open doors. I don't seem to have that much faith in that, (laughs) honestly. I don't know if you, you know, because even the good things I've done, and I've said this to some of my world religion classes at FGCU, because this comes up in a number of world religions, and I look at uh, the guests who say, you know, they talk about, well, you've got to be sincere. And I look at them and said, I haven't done a selfless thing in my life, and the students are like shocked. And I, then I then I start listing off. Well, I've gone and I built houses in, you know in Nicaragua, and I've served uh, stu- kids in in. Um, uh, Haiti, and I've given away this and that and all that, but I've never done, it's, they're still not selfless, you know? I get a lot of kick out of it. I get a benefit from it. I feel good about myself as a result. So it's like I have never done a truly selfless act in my life. I can't, I, and, and the Bible will say things like all my righteous deeds in the book of uh, Isaiah are as, not my bad stuff. But my good stuff, the best I've done is like a filthy rag before God, you know? If you ever had a kind of a stinky, smelly, yucky look, you're just like, what do you want to do with it? You want to throw it away. And that's my good stuff before God is not pure enough or good enough. I don't have enough status on my own. I don't have that kind of faith in my own human ability to create my own um, righteousness But now, Paul says, for the first time in all of history, a totally different approach has happened, and God is the one who established it. Absolutely unheard of type of spirituality has been revealed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says those first two words of verse 29. He says, there are no more powerful words in the whole of Scripture than these words, but now because it marks a whole disconnect from the entire way human beings have tried to achieve a status before God and a ranking of how good they are compared to others. A whole new way, a new, new privilege has been given us, a new opportunity that's not based on your race or your wealth or your politics or your work or your human effort. Not even on your moral accomplishedness, not on your sincerity, not on how hard you've been praying. And it's not just any righteousness, it's not just any privilege that you might be getting, but it is a divine righteousness, a perfect record, a complete access to God's goodness based on the work and the person and the actions of Jesus Christ himself. And it will be the end to all of your struggle for significance and personal worth and validation and acceptance because it opens the door of God's entire kingdom to you freely. That's the gospel. And that's what's so utterly unique and different about it. It, It's kind of the reverse of every human philosophy. It's any inclination of the human heart of how you establish your, 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 your right to something. Anything that human culture has really set up is the way that they're going to set up some ladder of status or privilege or opportunities. And you gain it, and you are totally worthy when you are absolutely unworthy. Now, that's kind of odd. Now, you might be a thoughtful person right now thinking, well, that's great for those religious people. I'm not that religious. I might be spiritual, but not religious. So I don't think I'm really looking for righteousness like you're talking about. And um, I would probably say, let's, let's peel that word off. I know it's a tough one uh, because it sounds so religious. But I think if you peel behind it, you're, you're going to see that everybody's really, like I said at the beginning, looking for righteousness, whether they realize it or not. You see, because athletes do it when they're trying to get the trophy and the record. And actors are seeking it when they want to get the award and be recognized for their work. And writers want to win the Pulitzer and get a good review of their books. You know, David Zahl says, when we obsess over food or politics or anything else in between, it's not that we're really after that food. It's not just that political. It's what that brings us. And what it brings us is it makes us feel alive for a moment, that we are important, that we are enough, that we are better than, that we are righteous. At least we're right about this. Because we all want to know that our lives are worth something, that they count, that we are worthy to be accepted. And so we're all seeking for it, even if we don't use the term righteousness. And we struggle for it, and we are struggling for a justification. We want that access. We want that open door. We want that privilege. We don't know where to get it. The difference is that the Bible story, Paul says now, for the first time, it's coming to you in a different way. Because it's the only way you can actually get it. It comes to you freely. It comes to you out of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It comes and gives you that validating performance record so that you have full access to God. For the first time, privilege is for everyone. Status is given to anyone who believes in Jesus. So that's kind of why we need it. Because... Every other way, we're trying to quest for it and gain it. We never get enough. It's never enough. It's never quite validating enough, and we're seeking more. But now, the question is, what is this? What is this righteousness that comes through faith? And um, there are going to be three qualities from this text that I'm going to share with you today. They are these. That it's alien. I know that's a weird word. It's a declaration And it's really, again, worthiness or status or access. It's something positive, not just a negative. So um, let's take them one at a time, that it's alien. This comes from that first verse of Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, notice, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets testify to it. It's apart from everything that has ever been done before. It's something outside of the system that we have been living under our entire lives. And there, what's, what's amazing to me is um, there's an amazing tension in the Old Testament, in all the stories that all fit together. There's this amazing um, bifurcation that God does, like, you know, um, call his people to follow the Ten Commandments, let's say, you know, the moral law of God, right? He doesn't say, oh, you know, these are just friendly suggestions. Maybe if you can try to get around to it, be nice to each other. No, he says, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't say On Tuesdays only, or at least once in a while. It's very, very specific. And yet at the same time, the story of the Bible in the Old Testament is the failure of human beings to do any of them. For instance, when the Ten Commandments were given, do you realize what's going on? Moses is on top of Mount Sinai in the book of Uh, You know, Exodus, he's there getting the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the first one, you shall have no other gods before me, and what are the people doing? They've, got, they've created the golden calf, and they've got another God right before. They are breaking the law as the law is even being given right then. And it's like, well, maybe they knew because God had spoken those words to them all right before this. Moses then goes up to get them written down. He comes back down to find, find them breaking the entire law right in front of his eyes. So there's this tension, and then God seems to know that that's going to be the tension, Because then God even sets up an entire system to deal with the failure of human beings. It's called uh, the Day of Atonement, which is coming up next week, I think uh, Monday or Tuesday. You can look, Yom Kippur. That Yom is day, and Kippur is to cover over atonement. Atonement. And it's basically the fact that back in the time of the Exodus, when they were at Mount Sinai, when God gave them the law, he also said, I know, once a year, what I want you to do is to take a spotless lamb, try to find as perfect of a lamb, no blemish or defect on this lamb, and slaughter that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and have the high priest take that blood and go into the Holy of Holies, into the central part of the the tabernacle, the only time once a year that you can even go in there to the Ark of the Covenant, and yes, think Raiders of the Lost Ark and that Ark of the Covenant, and there have the priests sprinkle the blood to cover over the sins of the people. And why I'm saying this all, and how alien that is that we needed is because that word for covering over is actually used in this text For what Jesus did and what's going on in Romans chapter 3 where it says, whom God put forward as that wonderful word, propitiation. That is the covering over by his blood to be received by faith. And that is how God shows his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So Jesus becomes the completion of that atoning sacrifice that was started back then when the law was even given to Israel. And he does it once and for all. And God had set that up temporarily, pointing to the fact that one day a sacrifice would be given to complete this whole thing. It doesn't have to be done every year. It doesn't have to be done once in a while. It doesn't have to be done once a century. It's done once and for all in Jesus Christ. His life was given and his blood was poured to give, be that complete sacrifice. And that is an alien righteousness. It's given to you you don't have. It's from outside of you. It's a gift. Second point, it's a declaration of not guilty. And this is where that word ao or to justify comes in, because it's actually a court of law term. Okay? It means to justify. It means basically there is a God. Uh, the picture is that God is at a judgment seat and he is listening to the testimony of your life. You know, And I'm standing in the court of law and I come forward with my uh, validating record or invalidating record. I mean, think of it. Already this morning, I pro- probably have sinned three or four times that I can't even think of, let alone the times that I know. Um, if I just sinned three times a day, I mean, and that's like one, one very you know, mean thought against somebody, one word that was out of place, and one thing that I avoided doing that I should have done, just those three. I mean, that's just very, right? Three times 365 is over 1,000 times my age, I'm not even going there, Okay, Can you imagine taking that and saying, "Okay, I've had 50,000 violations. And those are the things that I might even recognize, not the countless things I don't even know. 50,000 violations before any judge and get. It's like, let me off the hook again? No. But this is where it becomes amazing is that the judge in this case is God the Father who decides to set up and say, I'm going to appoint for you a defense attorney, and his name is Jesus Christ. And this defense attorney is so good, and God so loves me that he gives me the best, the ultimate defense attorney who says, okay, yes, all true, all that wrong, totally guilty, but I'll take it you declare him, you declare her righteous, not guilty. And that's what to justify means, is to declare not guilty, innocent of all charges. In Romans four, verse five, this is how it says it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the, do you see that word there? What does that word say? Who does God justify? Does it say he justifies the good? No, does he justify the pretty good? Does he justify the partly good? Does he justify the sincerely trying to be good? It says he justifies the, what's the word? Ungodly. Now, a lot of people rationally understand this passage for years coming to church, and they think, you know, justification is kind of like a piece of furniture. It's something to look at. Okay, that's nice. But do you understand? I can sit down in this. I can rest my entire weight on this. It's not a museum piece to go like, oh, that's nice to know. It is what I can trust in, that Jesus Christ justifies me, the ungodly. And so that's why I don't want to say it's just a um, negative or a Uh, a thing to understand up here. It's a thing to live by and a thing to understand that we have been given, thirdly, a worthiness, a status, or better yet, an access to the entire kingdom. So it's not that just we're talking about forgiveness of sins. True, forgiveness is part of justification, but that's just like saying I am free from my past Justification is saying, I am open to the future that God has for me. Righteousness is a wholeness, a status, a rightness with God. Forgiveness is a, you may go now, you are freed from that. But justification is really a, you may come, you have access to the entire kingdom of God right now. Forgiveness is getting out of jail. Justification is getting the keys to the palace. Just think about that. You have the keys to the kingdom. You have the access that Jesus Christ has to the Father is now yours. Everything that he has is yours. There is nothing that he held back from you. You have privilege, real privilege. You have status, the only status that matters. You have a worthiness that can never be taken away from you. You get Jesus It's not an abstract thing. You get everything that Jesus has and did. So all of his courage, all of his joy, all of his service, all of his love, all of his compassion, all of his truthfulness is all yours. His medals, his decorations, everything that he would have is now bestowed on you. That's righteousness. Okay? So how do we receive this? Now, like I said last week, you don't don't accept the good news without hearing the bad news first, okay? Unless you realize that whatever status or privilege the world might give you, like our society, is really worthless when it comes to your access to God or your position with God, unless you understand more or less the poverty of your wealth, or the worthlessness of being in whatever class you are, the insignificance of your race or ethnicity, or your curriculum vitae, or your work ethic, or your moral standing, or your family heritage, or your nationality, unless you understand those things really don't cut it and never will with God, it's hard for you to be convinced that you need what Jesus has to offer. Unless I understand my emptiness, I never get filled with what God can give me. I like what Blase Pascal said. He said, there are only two kinds of men, the righteous who think they are sinners and the sinners who think they are righteous. And a lot of people in this world think, hey, I'm okay on my own. I really don't need that. Or what I need is just a little help. But he says, the real people are those who understand that they are truly sinners and they need The full righteousness of God. Do you realize Jesus had a lot of friends, but he only had friends that were sinners. He didn't have friends that were good people, you know. He picked the worst, if you want to say, which means he picked you and he picked me. And Rabbi Zacharias also says this about faith. When we were talking about faith in this, he says faith in the West is sort of an extracurricular interest a mere abstract of life for the sake of inner peace. But faith seldom enters the conscience as a conviction. I think that's because people kind of look at church as extracurricular and Christianity as just a thing that you add in, that I'm pretty good already and this will help me be better. It's the wrong understanding of righteousness, the wrong understanding of your status before God. It's not just you need a little forgiveness thrown in. And so people will cycle into church when they feel like they have a need for their children to be raised uh, with, you know, a good Christian upbringing. And then they leave. And then they come back later when their life may fall apart and they need something more. And then once they get their act together again, they kind of say, oh, I'm doing okay. And they're still understanding. They're standing before God based on their own, like, how I'm doing instead of the fact that God sees it differently. This is what amazes me. When I was like in India, for instance, people are flocking to Christianity in that nation. There's 1.4 billion people. Christianity is still a minority. But the people who are coming into Christianity in India, the people who readily accept it are the ones that have no, they have no status in their society, that they are at the lowest of the low. They are among the untouchables in the lower caste system because it's like, we know we're considered morally impure and we have nothing and we agree and so, but here we've got a God who favors us, who was one with us, who was born among the lowest caste in his society, who had all the privileges of eternity but did not use them for himself but gave them all up for us. They are flocking to it. And what's amazing too, those who have a lot of status and privilege in society often have a hard time with Christianity. I don't know if you've noticed, Jesus even said in his day, he says, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because they think, you know, I'm pretty good. I must be. I've been, quote, blessed, I've got status. So I don't want you to try to just look at your quote sins and go like, oh yeah, I mean. I want to look at your boasting today. Because that's what Paul does in this text. To get over it and break through to understand the fullness of this. Don't look at your sins. The, the Pharisees did a good job at that and then they got a little forgiveness and then they come back and forth and that. Fa- but they were still trying to work on their own like identity and righteousness of being a good sincere person who repented a lot. Now what I want you to do is see that in this passage how Paul talks about when you really get it, you understand where your boasting is. He says in Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justification by grace through faith in Jesus destroys all my sense of boasting, I can't have a chip on my shoulder about how great I am at anything. Everything I've got is a gift. Even when it's like I've worked hard for everything in my life, do you realize the ability to work hard for anything in my life is also a gift from God? You know? When I start to understand the fact that everything I consider as great to give me status is actually a loss. For knowing Christ, that's when I'm starting. To, when I start to boast in Him alone, rather than in my accomplishments, that's when I am understanding this privilege, this righteousness that I am given. Paul put it this way in the book of Philippians and he could ha- he said I can claim I'm a pharisee of pharisees I you know nationality righteousness all that stuff I got it I'm throwing it all out he says whatever gain I had I count it lost for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my lord he only boasts in Jesus and the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else he doesn't boast in himself He he has nothing above anyone else. He takes all of his righteousness from Jesus and all of his worthiness and all of his acceptance before God comes from Jesus Christ himself. That's when you're starting to get it. That you let go of all those things the world wants to offer you as a substitute. And you keep open hands before your God who wants to give freely his son, Jesus, to you. I guess today I'm going to ask the question, are your hands really open to him? Are you holding on to something else? Do you see everything in life as a gift, or are you still claiming certain rights and privileges because of all that you've done or your background or anything else? And I want to pray for us, especially as we struggle in in our country with this whole idea of power and privilege and how we're using it today right now against each other. And I'm going to pray that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, whatever position and power and privilege we may have in life, don't use it for us. We don't need it for ourselves anymore, but we can use it for the sake of others, to serve others, to care for others, to call out for others, to let them know the free gift of Jesus that now a righteousness with God is offered completely differently, and that changes everything. Will you please pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this day that we've all been looking for righteousness, all looking for that status, all that privilege, that open door, that validation And because, Jesus, you are worthy, because you, Lord Jesus, were the one that lived the perfectly righteous life in our place, because you became sin for us, that you took on our sin, that you took the guilty plea to make us righteous, that you are the complete substitute, that you are that atoning sacrifice we can receive with empty hands and not even look at how greatly we're receiving it, but, but how great you are. We want to boast only in you today, Lord Jesus, in your goodness and grace. And we are thankful, Lord Jesus, you have given us the status to walk into your Father's presence, righteous and blameless, and to ask from our loving Heavenly Father great and abundant things. And so today we ask, Lord, for people in our congregation, we ask, O Lord, that you, Because you are so loving and so giving and so good to us, and you have given us this righteousness, you will give us every other good gift. And so we lift up to you today, Vern Westfall, and pray your healing on him. And as you have brought him through this last ordeal, that you would now continue to bring your healing, working through doctors and others. We pray for you, uh, for Andy Blankenship, as she goes, Lord to Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa this coming week, that you would just open the right doors for a clinical trial and that you would get all the glory. We uh, lift up to you, Lord Mike as uh, Grisky, as she has back issues. Lloyd, uh, who is struggling uh, with different uh, issues related to his Parkinson's, Lord God. We lift up to you, Kai, as this little child is uh, undergoing chemotherapy. Uh, for Chris, who needs your care. We thank you for Jamie and Chris who are here and their health, and we lift them up to you. Lord, we've got access, and we know that you are interceding for us, Lord Jesus, and your spirit is groaning with, uh, groans too deep for words for all of us. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to rely, try to build up a resume with you. We don't have to try to be something we are not that you justify the ungodly and you have fully accepted us and forgiven us and granted to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. We thank you for all of these things, Lord. We pray that we'd be open now in receiving the Lord's Supper this day to that righteousness that Jesus gives us, how he freely gives us all things. We pray that you would be working in us this day, Lord, And in this week forward, that we would see other people through your righteous judgments, that we wouldn't look at them by class and race distinctions in such a way as to make some people more worthy than others, but see their worthiness. They are worthy to come to you. They are worthy to be loved by you. They are absolutely (laughs) accepted and wanted by you, Lord God, and that we would have such a love for them too. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your precious name this day. Amen.